We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2 today. We're going to begin in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. We're looking at God's grace, which uh, indeed we're grateful for that. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1, beginning in verse 1 in just a moment. You know, I was reading this past week, uh, Pastor Ken Langley um, was sharing uh, an interesting account in his life. Uh, He was preparing with his wife to take a flight, and as often happens, uh, the airline overbooked the number of individuals that would be in the flight, and so he and his wife were waiting to get instruction of what to do next. Shortly thereafter, they received uh, uh, contact that they needed to go to the desk and speak with one of the associates, and much to their surprise and delight, they were informed the only way that they could board that particular flight is they had to be a first-class passenger, and so they were very grateful for that. They said it was wonderful, the food was great, the leg space was wonderful, all of the amenities that uh, you might enjoy they experienced. But as they were sitting there, they decided to play a game among the two of themselves, and it was this game. They said, let's see if we can figure out who else is just as we are. They really ought not be here. And so they looked out and they saw this one man who was trudging around in the cabin in his sock feet. He was playing with the onboard phone, but really not making any calls. He was um, sneezing loudly. And uh, when they brought him a cloth to sort of cover his tray, he tucked it in his shirt. And they said, certainly, he's like us. We ought not be here. He ought not be here. But then it occurred to them, what if other people were playing the same game and picked them out? And so it was no longer a fun game. But you know, today we're looking at God's grace, this Sunday before Thanksgiving. And there's so many things for which we should be thankful. But God's grace is right at the top of the list. Because we're going to see today, none of us deserves his grace. None of us deserves right standing with God. And that's where we're going to look. We're all in the same boat. None of us worthy. Look with me at Ephesians 2, beginning verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Let us pray. Father, as we look to your word today, we are grateful 
for your grace. And Lord, if we are followers of you today, if we have been saved, we stand in that grace and because of that grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of our own merit. Father, if there be any here today who are trusting in themselves for right standing with God, help them to know this day, Lord, that it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that we're in a right standing with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, every one of us should desire to have the confidence that we're in right standing with God. And by that, I mean that should we die or should we live, whatever that is, that we would know that we are with the Lord, that we're part of God's family, that we're a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're a follower of him. You know, as we look at uh, this particular portion of God's word, uh, particularly verses 8 and 9, are very familiar to many believers, and they're as true as they are familiar. And the truth is this, that our right standing with God is by grace and through faith. It is by grace, God's initial act, that we have the opportunity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is through faith our response to that that we are able to know that we're right with God. This morning, as we look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, we sort of followed chapter 1. And last week and the week prior to that, we looked at all of the blessings that God gives to those who have trusted in him. But then he brings us back, to, for those of us who have trusted Christ, to that point of conversion. And, and he has a very sobering thought in verse 2. Lest we become prideful, he said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in verse 1. But then we see that great adversative or change in verse 4 of our text we just read where it said, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ. This morning, uh, there's so many ways that we could look at this particular portion of scripture. We could look at it uh, from a a man-centered perspective because it speaks about man. It speaks about his own plight, what he lacks, uh, what he needs. But today, I really want to focus as we look at these 10 verses on the person and the work of God. And there are four things, I believe, that we can see this morning. And the first is this. God himself is the initiator in the act of salvation. In other words, God foreknew us. God worked in and through us. And for those of us who have trusted Christ, we can take no credit for initiating that. It is our response to God's initial act, and that is salvation. A person can't enter right standing with God apart from the drawing of God's spirit, apart from God himself working in and through a person's life. I had a friend a number of years ago, and we were young. We were probably in our 20s. I I knew this guy. I used to play ball with him. We were good friends, and I was witnessing to him, and he said, I've got it all right, Rick. I'm okay. I'm going to live and do what I want to do, and then before I die, I'm going to be sure that I'm right with God. Now, there are two real problems with that. First is none of us knows how long we have to live. We could walk out of this place today and within a brief time lose our lives. The second is this. We don't have control over these matters. We don't just come to God and say, okay, God, it is uh, my 
persuasion and my desire today that I'm just going to believe in you. That's, that's not how the scripture says it works. I heard uh, an amusing story this week. It's a special interest story out of the United Kingdom. It appears that just a, a few weeks ago, or relatively not too long ago, that a dog was separated from its owner. This dog's name was Rosie. She was 10 years old, and they were outside, and Rosie heard fireworks and began to panic, and I believe uh, fled with another dog away from her owner. But what is interesting is what transpired shortly after that. The owner was looking frantically for Rosie and couldn't find her, but Rosie herself walked right into the local police station and I guess turned herself in as a lost dog. I've never heard of that. They saw the collar, they called Rosie's owner, and they were reconnected shortly thereafter. Would that our salvation be that way? That we would just say on our own terms, I'm lost, I know I'm lost, God, I need you. The problem is we're sinners. We can't do that in and of ourselves. It is our response to the grace of God. Notice what he says in verse 1 here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul is reminding the Christians here of their former life before they came to know Christ. They were dead. They couldn't walk in a police station. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. What they needed was someone to initiate that life, that spiritual life. One who is dead can't do anything. Death and activity are mutually exclusive. Think about that. Death and activity, they do not go together. The person separated from God in his or her sin cannot take the initiative. It must be the work of God. Now, man can respond by faith, but it's the grace of God that allows that. And even faith is a gift from God. Remember there was once a man who was desiring a healing for a family member. He said, Lord, I believe, help thou my own unbelief. So we see the realm in which the Ephesians formerly were. Notice what he said in verse 2, in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, the world system, which is not God-centered. According to the ruler of the power of the air, we see in verse 2. That is Satan himself. His rule is limited, but he has been granted a limited ruling and a spirit which is now working in the disobedient, the evil spirit uh, the, the, that is working in and around that presence. And then he speaks also, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires. So what is he saying there? He's saying before you came to know Christ, Externally, there were forces that were controlling you, and internally, in your fleshly desires, you were enslaved. You were doing what you were doing by nature, and as a result of that, he tells us at the end of verse 3 that you were under the wrath of God, separated from God in sin. And unlike that dog, Rosie, we're not in ourselves free to act. We don't just wake up one day and say, I need to believe Jesus. God's spirit takes the initiative in that, quickens us, awakens us to the truth. Romans 3.11 says this, no one seeks after God. 
There's no one. It's speaking there in the context of salvation. The person who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in and of himself by nature resists God, doesn't follow God. I've shared before when I was two years old the propensity that we have towards sin and the way it was illustrated. I got some crowns and I began to color uh, with crowns on the wall in, uh, in my room when I woke up from an afternoon nap. My mom came in the room. You know, the first thing I did was I made myself big and covered where I just colored. Why well, was? I knew I'd done wrong. I knew I'd done wrong. And so I tried to distract my mom. I said, see, mom, I'm two years old, but that didn't work. She said, yes, you're two years old, and you know better than to write on the wall. What was that? As a two-year-old, I had a propensity towards sin. I was not right with God. No one is born right with God. We're born separated from God in our sin, and we're dependent upon the grace of God. And the good news we see in verse 4, but God. Verse 1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he follows in verse 4, but God, but God who is rich in mercy. Praise God that he took the initiative to come to us. I wonder today, have you believed on him? If not, through the very preaching of this word, God's spirit is speaking to you the truth of his word that you're dead spiritually apart from him. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see a, a second truth this morning. Not only is God the initiator to bring us to right standing for those of us who have trusted in him, but God is rich in mercy toward us. He's rich in mercy toward the sinner. Uh, I loved my maternal grandfather, Randall Woldridge. He died when I was about 12 years old. I've shared, you know, he built the house that I now live in, never knowing I would dwell in that house. But I have a lot of great memories of going to visit with him in Evergreen, Virginia, that big um, suburban area of Appomattox. And uh, we used to have what was called party and party was basically a bedtime snack, and his sister owned a little country store in the little village of Evergreen, and we would go and get snack, come back to his house and eat it. For me, it would be cookies and milk. For him, it was sardines and Vienna sausages. I don't know how he would eat those that late at night. But I remember visiting with him one time, and, and uh, I was about seven or eight years old, and I was playing outside. He was away working. He built houses. He was away during the day. I was with my grandmother at the house, and I had this hard plastic ball. You remember those pink plastic balls, reddish pink? And I was just throwing against the wall, and then my accuracy went that way, and I hit a window. You're saying, you've written on walls. You've destroyed windows. I had a terrible childhood. But I remember breaking that window and my grandmother didn't make a decision she said your grandfather will deal with it when he gets home and I thought oh man I was all I didn't want to disappoint him but really I didn't want to get a spanking and I, I worried all afternoon my grandfather came home looked at the window put his arms around me said it's okay he paid to fix the window and he even let me eat at his table that night. And I, didn't, and I didn't even have to eat sardines, all right? 
That was grace to me. Notice what it says in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ. In other words, he invited us to his table. Now, now we were enemies. It's one thing for a grandfather who loves his grandson whose blood to say, it's okay, grandson. You can still sit at the table. You'll still be okay. It's another thing for a merciful God to look at an individual in rebellion who is not acknowledging him and saying, I want you. I'm pulling you toward me. And by the way, when you're with me, your sins will be wiped away and you'll be with me as a child. Notice the work. God who is rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love, made us alive, even though we were dead in trespasses. And then my translation has an exclamation point, you're saved by grace. And then that grace goes even farther. Not only did he make us alive and leave us in the outside, but he brought us into the seat with Christ Jesus. God is rich in mercy toward us as sinners. I wonder today, if you've never trusted Christ, do you realize how much God loves you? Do you realize that he loved you enough that before you were even born, Christ died for you? Do you realize that he's trying to draw your heart to him? He wants to know you. He wants to have fellowship with you. God is rich in mercy toward us, even when we aren't thinking of him and when we're opposed to him. But I want you to see a third truth. God is no debtor. God doesn't owe you nor me anything. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that our salvation is not a work of our own. You will not get to heaven if you try to do it in your own strength. It is a futile attempt. You say, how do you know it? I'm a preacher. I mess up. I'm not perfect. I wish I could tell you every action I had, every word I had, everything I said, everything I thought was righteous. It's not. We're all sinners. If you don't believe it, let somebody pull in front of you and go about five miles an hour when you have to be somewhere. It's no telling what your attitude toward that person will be. All right? We're all sinners. James 2.10 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of all of it. The problem with thinking that we'll gain right standing with God in our own strength and by what we do, that demands perfection. And there's only one who ever walked the face of the earth who was perfect. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And the good news is he died for you to pay your price. But there's another big problem with thinking that we're going to be made right with God by our righteous acts is the attitude that lies behind it, and it's this. God, you're a debtor. God, I've done this. You owe me. The way I look at it, God created us by his grace. He wakes us up in the morning. He owes us nothing. Everything that we have is a result of his grace and his mercy toward us. Paul intends that when he says that our salvation is not from works, lest anyone should boast before God or before man. Look what I've done. Look what God must make note of. 
and reward me for. The person who offers up his or her own actions to gain right standing with God basically says, God, this is what I've done. Now pay me. Look back at Romans chapter 4 for just a moment. In Romans chapter 4, we read in verses 4 and 5, Paul also is writing, Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. In other words, if we go to work for someone, that compensation is what is owed, not a gift. But notice what he says in verse 5, But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, His faith is credited for righteousness. What is that saying? Spiritually speaking, God is not a debtor. Then we have that right standing. It's by his grace, his gift to us. God is not a debtor. Then we see, finally, as we look at God in this text, God is purposeful in bringing the believer into right standing with him. Let me tell you this morning, God cares about your soul more than you care about your soul. God cares about your soul more than any preacher, more than any virtuous person you consider. God cares about you. He loves you. He cares about your life now. He cares about your future. He cares about your influence. In fact, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it said that God is not willing for any to perish but that all would come to repentance. God is desiring you to believe on him today and to believe on him as a follower of him. That's his desire. He wants that right standing for you. He would have died on the cross were you to be the only one on this earth. That's how much he loves you. But he also desires you to serve him. As I've shared before, my mom dealt in antiques for about 20 years. And what she would do as an antique dealer, she would look at that piece of furniture and she would make an estimate. Is that thing valuable? Now that thing many times would be broken. You and I would look at it and say it wouldn't be anything. But she had a man that worked on her furniture and she knew that he could refinish it. He knew that she knew that he could fix things And she looked at that piece not as it was, but as what it would become. And when God saves an individual, even greater than that, he has the foreknowledge of knowing what we can be in his kingdom. And if God has saved you today, if God has brought you into right standing, it's not just so that you can escape the fires of hell, which is most certainly a big part of it, but so that you might be a witness for him that others might miss that judgment. And in our text, we see God's purpose in two verses. Look at verse 7. After he says that he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, in other words, given us that standing with Christ, verse 7 says, so that, there's the purpose clause, in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
What he wants is for somebody to look at you, Christian, and say, that's a believer. That's a person. I knew how that individual was. I was sharing about a friend uh, that I, I went to high school with, and I was sharing with another friend about that individual we went to high school with. And, and as I began to talk about this person who is serving the Lord in the church and working in the church, that guy said he didn't used to be that way. He used to be a partier. He used to be wide open. And I said, to the glory of God, this man loves the Lord Jesus Christ and is devoted to him. And that guy said, he's different. And he is. You see, when, when God saves a person, it's not that that person might be commended, but that they would see Christ in us and it would lead to the fact that we display the riches of his grace toward us. And then we see in verse 10, and as Randy and I were talking before, a familiar portion of scripture that's come up even in Trevor Jones's funeral a few weeks ago. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The point is this, we're not saved by our works, but we're saved unto works. Works is not the foundation of our salvation. God's grace through faith is the foundation, but God saves us that we might serve him. I think back to the parables of the Bible, and I think of the vineyard workers, and, and, and I don't want to draw too much from that parable, but I think it's very clear that when ones were brought in to the favor of the master, it was to do the labor in the field. Where is workmanship created unto good works that we might express his glory? I wonder today, believer, are you such an advertisement for him? When people look at you, do they say, that individual is a follower of Christ. That individual is different. Through, through his or her patience, through kindness, through uh, attitude toward loving acts, are people seeing Jesus in us? And so we see our great and glorious God, how he takes the initiative with us, how he's rich in mercy and grace, toward us how he's not a debtor he owes us nothing but yet shows us his favor and how he has a purpose for each of our lives and as I think about that and think about that table I'm reminded of a great Old Testament illustration of God's grace toward us sometimes in the Old Testament and the New God gives us an earthly representation that we might understand his love for us. For instance, one is David and Mephibosheth. You may not be familiar with Mephibosheth, but Mephibosheth was a grandson to King Saul. Now, King Saul made himself a rival against young David. And in that day, when, when one kingdom or one family was removed from power, often the subsequent king would remove every family member for fear that they might try to threaten and retake the kingdom. Yet David, after Saul and Saul's son Jonathan had died, was speaking one day to his servant Ziba, and he said this in his unusual. He said, is there anyone in the house of Saul to which I may show kindness? And immediately Ziba, the servant, said to David, there's one 
He's crippled in both feet. In other words, he was dropped when he was child, a child as the news of what was happening uh, to his family and the deaths. The, the nanny, the lady he was caring for him, dropped him. And he was crippled in both feet. And so David, who loved Jonathan and who desired of his own will to show favor, said, bring Mephibosheth to me. And Ziba had Mephibosheth brought to the house. Now, Mephibosheth couldn't walk, okay? It was David's initiative. David had to go and draw him to himself. And when he arrived, David said basically this, and I'm paraphrasing, but you can see it. It's the gist of it. He said, Mephibosheth, don't worry. See, he probably thought, Mephibosheth thought, I'm the only survivor David knows of, and he'll try to remove me so I'm not in threat. He said, David said, I desire to show you kindness. I'm going to restore your grandfather's property to you. And he said this to Mephibosheth, and you will sit at my table the rest of your life. Mephibosheth said this. Now remember, he didn't bring himself. David took the initiative. And Mephibosheth said this to the king, who in the world am I that you would be so kind? I'm nothing more than a dead dog. Mephibosheth knew himself to be unworthy and was amazed that he was a recipient of the king's mercy and grace to him. And later in that chapter, 2 Samuel 9, we read that Mephibosheth ate at David's table just as one of David's sons. A man not even able to walk and make his way to David brought in a man who was considered to be an enemy forgiven and not just allowed to live, but brought into the house of David and cared for. And that's just a tiny bit compared to the grace that God gives to a sinner who doesn't know him, who has rejected him. God is rich in mercy grace. I wonder today, have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Why not today? He loves you. He's taken the initiative toward you. You've been living your own life. You know it. You've not been living for him and God is calling and says, I have a better life. I want to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. Why not today? Maybe today as a believer, it is good this Sunday before Thanksgiving to look at this passage of scripture and realize how God has been so good to you. Your life headed without purpose, without spiritual life. God, who is rich in mercy, has placed you on an eternal trajectory of glory. Let's pray. Father, as we look today, there may be some here today who have never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may they join me in this prayer in saying, Lord, I know that I am a sinner. Lord, unworthy of your mercy and grace. Father, not acknowledging you in my life, living by my own standards. But Lord, I realize today my eyes are open that you loved me that Jesus died for me is your act of grace and goodness to me and that, Lord, he was raised from the dead. 
and that, Father, you'll take me from being a self-serving person, living without knowledge of you, and bring me into a new and glorious way of life. Lord, it may be that they would pray today, Lord Jesus, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, cleanse me of my wrongdoing. Lord, I follow you. Father, there may be others today who have already trusted you earlier in their lives, but Lord, their bearings have not been straight. Father, they've been living without the continual awareness of the blessings of your grace. Lord, this Sunday before Thanksgiving, keep us mindful that we are created by you and that we are your workmanship created unto good works, that, Lord, you would be glorified through our lives. We pray that this week. And, Lord, I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed with me 